Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, huh? <laughs> okay. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We are on verse 3. We actually, we, we studied the verse, but I didn't get to the cross references. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. So, God created the world out of nothing. We talked, we talked about that last week. Um, and that's the true biblical doctrine. God created the world out of nothing. Uh, well, i got a lot of uh, cross-references here. Olga, you want to look one up? <laughs> Genesis 1.1. And, okay, I know Jerry and... Lloyd, that's right. I, I, there's another Jerry, and I think James. I, I get mixed up. Jerry, yeah. yep. Okay, Lloyd, Genesis 2.1. And Jerry, Psalm 33.6. And Richard, Isaiah uh, 40.26. And let me think. I'm, I'm, names are escaping me. Is it Laura? Are you Lori? Laura? Glory. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Not really. Um, Jeremiah 10, 11 through 16. We'll do those and then we'll move along. Okay, Genesis 1, 1. That's it. That's an easy one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a be- that's the uh, beginning of the Bible. It begins with God's act of creation creating the world out of nothing. God exists for all eternity. God has no beginning or end. And He, in His eternal existence, God always has all of His attributes in their full perfection. Alright? The Lord says, I, the Lord, change not. Okay, so God exists for all eternity fully Endowed with all the attributes of deity. And that's a doctrine that we need to know. Yes. Right. Right. God did not need or use pre-existing materials to create. And as we talked about last week, this doctrine that God created out of nothing can be seen in just a scientific observation of the universe we live in. Because no matter how old... As we said last week, no matter how old scientists imagine the earth might be, it doesn't matter as long as what they know is that the, the age is a finite number. If it's, if it's a thousand years or a million years or a billion years, it's still a finite number, not infinite. And so, therefore, you have a finite creation that has not been around forever. And so, God is eternal. And so that's our doctrine. Yes, uh, Kathy. Well, they, most Muslims are Muslims because of their family 
their tradition, their, their country of origin. There are some that convert to Islam uh, for some strange reason. But I think, I'm not an expert on Islamic beliefs, but I think that Islamic scholars would say God created the world out of nothing like we do. I, I think so. But I'm not an expert on that. But the reason the Muslims that you know wouldn't know anything about it is they just are like a lot of Christians. They don't know what they believe. They just grew up in it. All right? But I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert. I think they do believe in creation the same way we would. Does anybody know? I, th- I think that's true. Right, they, because they would accept at least part of the Old Testament as some of the story. So they would believe that God created the world out of nothing. But they, their problem is their, their doctrine of God is very skewed compared to ours. It has some similarities, but it's not the same at all. Okay, we had Genesis 2-1. Somebody, Lloyd? Okay, again, it's talking about the heavens and the earth. Psalm 33 and verse 6. Okay. By the word of the Lord and the breath of His mouth, the heavens are made. So that throughout the Bible, we have affirmations of the doctrine of creation. Isaiah 40 and verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by nothing. He calls them all by name. Yeah, that was one I thought was interesting when I was looking it up. It's talking about the stars in the universe. And it says, you know, I'm sure we've all done that. You go out, especially when you're out camping up north or if you don't live in a city. In the city, we never see the stars. We just see streetlights. But if you, but if you, if you look, if you ever just imagine how many stars there are, and that verse says God knows them all by name. There isn't any missing. <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's just a poetic way of expressing God's infinite knowledge. That if he could know every single star in uh, every gr- uh, grain of sand in the desert, it's amazing to think about, isn't it? The comet, just to sort of figure out what it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Okay, Jeremiah 10, 11. Oh, you know what? That's a lot of verses, isn't it? <laughs> 11 through 16. Um, uh, um, with these fans going, it's awful hard, isn't it? Let, let's all turn to it together. We'll get you another one, uh, Laurie. Okay, let's all turn to it. I love this section of Jeremiah 10. It's a good one to know about. Jeremiah 10, starting with verse 11. And I've got kind of a loud voice, so I'll read it. Just, 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 uh, this is a good text to know if you're ever witnessing to an atheist or a polytheist or anybody that's not really a Christian. Alright? This is a good verse to know about. Here's what it says. Thus you shall say to them, the gods, small g, plural, that did not make the heavens and the earth, shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. So right there, now you have a difference between the God of the Bible and, and these other deities. 
They come into being and they perish. They're not eternal, so they don't have the attributes of God. Then verse 12. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding He stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and He brings out the wind from His storehouses. So it's a poetic way of seeing God's uh, providential oversight over even all of the forces of nature. How awesome they may seem to us, they are uh, a small created thing as far as God's concerned. Here's Look at verse 14. Every man is stupid. Anybody say amen? Especially the women? No, I think this is a generic. I think it means humans. <laughs> Don't say amen. <laughs> Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these, for the master of all is he. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So here... It's a very interesting theology that distinguishes Israel and her God from the pagan idols that surrounded them. And God in His infinite power is the creator and sustainer of the universe. The idols are created by humans. And they don't have any breath and they can do nothing. So this being the case, why is paganism so popular? Yeah, I, uh, Vishal Mangawadi had some interesting things to say. He's a Christian scholar from India, and, and he grew up in a society that was overrun with, I mean, millennia of paganism. And uh, one of the things that Vishal said is interesting. He says when people create their own gods, they can abuse them as they see fit. All right. So if you have a god who created you, okay, the god of the Bible that He can also judge you. And you have to worry about whether you're right with Him. But if you create your own God, if you get sick of it, you can just smash it and throw it away. Because this man-made God can't do anything to you. Uh, Justin Martyr, in his apology to the Romans, was saying that. He, he says, uh, you, you persecute us Christians because we, you say you, that your gods are mad at us because we don't worship them. He says, why, you treat your gods worse than we do. He said, if you get tired of your Saturn, you turn him into a cooking pot. (laughs) He says that he accused us of not treating your gods right. (laughs) You melt him down and make him into something else. Yes? I've seen that. By man. And you can't make deals with God. When When I was a brand new Christian and I was witnessing to the people at Iowa State that were... You know, party, you know, they're typical college students, all the old party goers. There was this guy who, I don't know, I think he grew up Catholic, but he didn't have a good understanding of Christianity. He thought his girlfriend was pregnant. So he, he decided to, but he wasn't sure. And this is back in 1971. So he decided that he'd make a deal with God. 
And he made a deal that he said, if my, it turns out my girlfriend doesn't, isn't pregnant, I'm going to quit drinking. I'll quit drinking if she's not pregnant. So he quit drinking, hoping that would kind of prime the pump. Turns out she was pregnant. So when I saw him, he was cursing and blaspheming God, drinking more than he ever did. And he told, and he told us as I was witnessing, and he told me this story. He said, I'm not going to serve God. God wouldn't, wouldn't keep his end of the deal. <laughs> All right. So, you know, and I was like a two-month-old Christian. I wasn't even quite sure what to tell him other than the, if you're going to come to God, you've got to come to him on his terms. You don't tell God what he has to do. You know, and, and, some, and, and also this idea that, oh, gee, if I, if I quit doing some certain thing, God's going to be very happy. And that, as if, as if, you know, you know, you got all these sins, and so God's very unhappy. If you take, if you have one less, God goes, yeah, maybe I'll give him something. <laughs> you know, he ain't so bad now. And so what this, what, what I had to try to explain to him is, no, our whole person is sinful. And God's angry with us, even if we have ten less sins. But we need Jesus to forgive us. And we need to we need to believe in Jesus. So I was trying to tell him that, and he goes, "No, nah, I'm going to drink." He was mad. So anyhow, that was really what you were saying, Sam, is that same kind of idea is that you can make bargains with God or manipulate. And now, and what that is is a pagan conception of God. The biblical conception is that God doesn't change. He he isn't manipulated by the creation, and that He speaks. And reveals himself as he sees fit, as it saw, as we read in Jeremiah 10. He revealed himself through the patriarchs and through the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that God isn't uh, like these pagan idols. So, God created the world out of nothing. Yes. It's the same as those Yeah. So, in case you couldn't hear, he just said that a lot of people that think that they're Christians will, will say they believe God is love. But they don't have any conception of any other of God's attributes. Now, and but you can disprove that, and this is a this is a handy thing because most people believe in John three sixteen. All right, so let's just look at it once. I heard uh, uh, Dr. Walter Martin use this when he was debating Bishop Spung. How many of you know who Bishop Spung is? He is the most liberal of the liberal liberals. I mean, he's so liberal he embarrasses the other liberals. That's uh, true. That's pretty liberal. And and so the, the the last week of his life before Dr. Martin went to be with the Lord, he was in a, a televised debate with Bishop Spung over the issue of homosexuality. All right. And during the debate, Dr. Martin did something that I thought was a very clever thing. He, he brought something up, and he, he says, well, uh, Bishop Spung, now you, you believe God is loving. Because what Bishop Spung was saying, if God's a loving God, then why would he judge people for what they need to do or feel like they have to do or how they are? Okay? That was his argument. A loving God's not going to tell people they can't do whatever it is they feel like they have to do. And so Martin, Dr. Martin says, now, when we were getting a, a sound check for the mics before we started filming, I noticed, Doctor uh, Bishop Spung, that you cited John 3:16. Do you believe in that verse? Oh yeah, 
I, I love that verse. He says, okay, uh, let's quote it, and, I, and I'm going to ask you some questions about John 3.16. So Martin, Dr. Martin says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And he says, Bishop Spunk, do you believe that anybody is going to perish in hell? Uh, he couldn't answer. He just dead silence. Because he didn't believe that. And, and he wouldn't affirm that. And so then Dr. Martin says, well, then you don't believe John 3.16. If you don't think that people are in danger of perishing in hell, then the rest of the verse loses any real meaning. Because the love that God showed in sending Jesus is to rescue us from perishing. And if nobody's going to perish, what's your good news anyhow? And why should somebody believe in Jesus? They're not going to perish if they don't. So, I give you that as a little uh, thing that you can use if somebody's willing to say God is love and they want to base it on John 3.16. Yeah, just expound upon that. Idolatry today, I mean, we still have the classic idolatry, if you want to put it that way, building the statue we just heard about. I mean, that's still around, but really the way idolatry is seen today is something we all need to guard ourselves against is in the mind and the heart shaping God as we want to see really where it's done. Mm-hmm. And that's why we need to be so careful to stick with the scriptures and stick with, and, and if we run into something in the scriptures and God is saying, this is how I am, I judge, I choose, I I am love, but I am also wrath. We have to be under that and not let ourselves take the concept of God and shape him in a way that we want him to be. That's, that's where we yeah, have to Yeah, right. For example, I've been running into this in my research for my writing. When I, when I did that thing on the merging church, Brian McLaren was doing that very thing. He was creating a God in the, in the, that he could understand and appreciate and that people in the culture would like. And he told a story about how he told this guy that was hostile to Christianity, Brian McLaren's version of God and Jesus. And the guy says, oh, I could believe it in Jesus like that. So, yeah, so we're going to give you one you can't believe it. Now, uh, now I'm going to start preaching, but I'm not careful. Uh, think about this. Uh, Karen and Norma were cleaning. There's an old office up there that I had back in the 80s, the early 90s. That we just became a storage thing. And Norma and Karen were cleaning it. And, and they asked her if they could go through my old file cabinet to see if there's stuff to keep or not keep. So they were going through there, and they pulled out this file that had old newspaper clippings. And, they, and uh, Karen said, do you need this or should we toss it? So I opened it up, and right on the top was a newspaper clipping for 1993. And it was about the reimagining God conference they had that the feminists put on. And there was a pretty. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. They said that in the, the article. Actually, said that. The article said that's what they were. And they had pagans. They had Wicca. They had, yeah, they had everything like that. Now, as I was reading this thing about reimagining God, it something clicked in my mind. The emerging church is using the same terminology. Brian McLaren in his book had reimagining God. 
a local pastor here who just published a book. I was looking at it. See, Amazon.com thinks I'm a heretic because I buy my heresy books from them for researching. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, yeah, then, well, then when I, when I go into Amazon.com, it said, well, you will like this book. <laughs> and it tells me all the other heresies out there. So I went on to Amazon.com to get some books by some guy named John Bevere that somebody's asked me about to, so I could research for a CAC article. And I said, you would like this book. And it said, um, Reimagining Spiritual Formation. And, and I thought, here's the same term these radical feminists had in 1993 when they had their conference. Now evangelicals are using reimagining. Now let me, and when I read that, Having seen that article, I realized why they're doing this. When you use the term reimagining God, you're buying into this postmodern understanding of truth and reality. And, and here's how it works. They don't believe that our beliefs ever are true or accurate as far as what really is. That we just have these paradigms or mental constructs of reality that, that we live in but we don't know they're true. We can't know they're true. It's all relative. And so when you say reimagining, what you're affirming is whatever we had before was just our imagination. So you have this imagination, and then you reimagine, and you have this imagination, and you keep your imagination as long as it works for you now in your little tribal group or culture group. And, 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 and the process is endless. And the only thing you ever have is an imagination. Now, what does the Bible say about our imagination? Yeah. Remember, remember in uh, Genesis when God decided to wipe them out with the flood? It says the imaginations of men were, were evil continually. And then in Jeremiah it says the false prophets speak out of their own imagination. Now, I had gotten an email from somebody I used to know who goes to the church, whose pastor wrote the book on reimagining spiritual formation. And so I, I said, I would like to sit down and talk to you and your pastor, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue that, because I want to find out what they're talking about. This is a guy who Beth- went to Bethel Seminary. Right? He's going to reimagine God. God help us. All right, how do we get on that? God created the world out of nothing. All right, let's get back to our text. Hebrews 11, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. Now, well, this, Hebrews 11 is about faith. And so by, it said faith is the assurance of things hoped for. By faith we understand that God created the uh, world out of nothing. And now we're going to have a, a litany of people in the Old Testament who had faith and how it pleased God that they had faith. All right? So Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Now, I remember I preached on Cain and Abel a couple of years ago when I, as I was preaching through Genesis, and I found it fascinating that the, the discussions, the Jewish uh, people have a long history of Theological discussion about the meaning of, of Abel and Cain's uh, story and why was Abel's offering better. Now, when I studied this, 
And it is true that he brought an offering that would require shedding of blood. And we know that without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But when I was studying Genesis, that issue doesn't really come up right there in Genesis 3. And there were great offerings that were acceptable to God under, in certain, in, during, in the Moses later. And comparing the New Testament to Genesis 3, it, I came to the conclusion that what made Abel's offering acceptable was that he offered in faith. And that we, without faith is impossible to please God. That's what we're going to learn here. That's the, the lesson. And that um, he was willing to listen to God. And Cain was given the opportunity to repent. Cain, remember the story? Well, let's go turn, let's turn to the story of Cain and Abel and see how this plays out. Uh, Genesis 4, I believe, is this. Is it 4? Okay, Genesis 4, the, the story of Cain and Abel. Verse 3, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but Cain in his offering had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desires for you, but you must master it. Now, notice here that God is talking to Cain. So he can, if he wants, ask God what would constitute doing well. Okay, in other words, he has the, the opportunity to come to God on his terms, whatever those may be. All right? And it didn't say that he had already sinned. It said sin is crouching at the door. All right? And you must master it. So there's a way out of this. There's a way of repentance. And so what happens is Cain refused to give God the sovereign right to tell him what he was going to do and how and on what terms. Abel came to God by faith on God's terms. And so I think that the key issue here is not necessarily the type of offering, although I think there's a, just, just implications. What do you think, Ryan? I, yeah. Fr- faith yeah, faith is the big issue. That it was an animal may foreshadow the future need for shedding of blood. I wouldn't rule that out. But in here, the issue right in Genesis 4 is, are you willing to listen to God? And come to him on his terms. Yes. They wouldn't have needed to shed blood had they not rebelled in the first place. Okay. But, but anyhow, so we must come to God in faith. Now, what do people say today? Oh, Linda, you had a question? Or a comment? In um, chapter 11 here, I mean, they're talking about faith. He's talking about faith. And he said, by faith, um, he gave the sacrifice that it said, that he was made righteous, or that he was righteous in faith. So I think that that's like what you said. It's not what he gave, but... That he came in faith. 
Right. And, and also here we have a, a, an early understanding of justification by faith. The righteousness comes by faith. Yes. I was going to say faith is a theme that runs consistently through the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham was justified by faith. Amen. I believe God was counting to him for righteousness. You know, apart from anything he did, he was often denying I, I totally agree. And, and see, so we see a theme here in all of these things, and that is the people are faced with having received God's Word, however it came to them. Now, we don't know exactly how God was speaking directly to Cain. All right? The text doesn't say. It just said that he did. All right? We don't know the, whether it was a theophany or the angel of the Lord. It doesn't say. But Cain knew it was God, and God was speaking to him. And if you and if you go through the Hebrews 11, again and again, what you have is cases where God spoke to somebody. God spoke to Noah, and Noah believed and built the ark. God spoke to Moses. Moses believed and left Egypt. Okay. God spoke to Abraham. Abraham believed. And had descendants, right? And so I was doing it. I wrote a book on this in 88 that was never got out of my file cabinet, but it was good practice. And uh, in that book, I did did a whole bunch of theological research on the biblical concept of faith. And one of the scholars said that clearly in the Old Testament, faith is a response to God's prior action. Okay. Faith isn't man conjuring up what he wants and then trying to get God to do it for him. Do you see the difference? God speaks, we believe or we don't believe. Whereas the, and what I was trying to do was write a book to refute the word of faith movement at the time. Because they were saying faith initiates with us and then we can obligate God. In fact, uh, Kenneth Hagin had a booklet entitled How to Write Your Own Ticket with God. Is it still out there? Still oh, hey, it's a classic. Oh. <laughs> Not okay. <laughs> oh, there you go. All right. Now, uh, so I spent a whole year writing a book on this that wasn't of the literary quality that anybody would want to publish, but it was good practice. Uh, and but it became very clear that God is the one who initiates. Uh, what the, the confronting people, speaking to people, revealing to, to people his way, faith is the response to that that is pleasing to God. Amen. So by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. The text doesn't say, maybe God had spoke to, earlier to them. We don't know. But we just know by faith he responded to God. Now Cain had his opportunity. See, when I first read that as a brand new Christian, I thought God was just being arbitrary. It didn't seem fair to me. I was, you know, I just, I, I got saved and they told me to read John, so I did. And then they told me to, so I didn't know what to do next. So I started at Genesis, and I just go right through the whole Bible, which I did. And so the first time reading through the Bible, I kept coming up. With, I didn't understand it very well as a brand new Christian. And I read the story. I go, why is God so mean to Cain? But I didn't totally understand the concept. That, uh, that God has the sovereign right to determine the terms by which anyone will come to him. 
And if, the, and if it's revealed, then Cain needs to just say, okay, what do I need to do? How do I get this sin that's crouching at my door to leave? <laughs> okay. But he didn't do it. So Cain is responsible. All right. So, yes, uh, Sidney. Yeah, faith and obedience are tied together throughout the Scripture. And the way I understand it, in fact, Paul says that his ministry was to bring about the obedience of faith amongst the Gentiles. I think that obedience is the re- is what faith looks like in action. So true faith resp- there is, is demonstrated by obedience. Is that what, do you understand that way? Keep my commandments. So yeah. it's faith expressing itself through love which expresses itself. In obedience. And so, thinking of that, if you look at the Cain and Abel story, what did we see? Abel does obey God. Cain doesn't. And he kills Abel. So, that would say Abel had faith, Cain didn't. And they Abel loved the truth, right? Not evidence so of we are responding, right. which is evident to things that are not seen by the world, and they're kind of wondering why. Well, it's our faith. That's yeah, that's you know we had an outreach out here yesterday, and we were preaching the gospel, witnessing to people. Let's say there's a whole big crowd of people that come, and the gospel goes to everybody. How do you know who has faith? The only way we can know is if they actually respond and say, okay, yes, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and I'm willing to confess him as Lord and repent. That's how you know somebody has faith. It stays invisible until there's a response. If God puts faith in the heart, they'll respond. Yes, but uh, what's your, tell your name. Oh, Brad. Brad, okay, Brad. I think that's what Jay's is. He says faith without works is dead. I mean, we're not working in order to be saved. We're working because we are saved. Yeah. Right. Exactly. We talked about that one time in Peter, Brad. You know the story about the sow that goes back into the mud hole, and we were talking about that in Sunday school here. And what the the fact the sow goes back in the mud shows that it was never really anything but a sow. Okay, it wasn't a sheep; it was a pig. Okay, we had. Not very often. At one time, we had sheep on our farm. We usually, we never did anything with. We got sheep to be lawnmowers. Okay, because my dad had a great big old farmyard, and there was all, and he hated having to mow it because the machinery'd be hiding in the weeds and it would bust the mower, and you know. And so he, one time he got a bunch of sheep because they'll eat everything right down. You know, but then we had pigs. But I'll tell you what, I never once saw a sheep jump in a mud hole. But the pigs are in them all day long. <laughs> and so, if God gives you a new nature, he, with that new nature, as a, as a new creature in Christ, He gives you a desire to get out of the mud hole. Now, if a sheep were to somehow get thrown into a mud hole or fall into one, it would get out as fast as it could. Because it didn't like it in there. You see the difference? So, Brad, I think that's just exactly what you're saying. That genuine faith is expressed in obedience. 
It is, it is visible. Yes. I think Cindy's point is is really should be needed, especially when we're going through Hebrews. That is the very point that we're going to be Whole chapter. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham was tested. By faith, they just goes up to the hall of faith. It's never just they had faith. That it was just passive. Yeah, it's not passive. It's active. By Uh, amen. Dan. God's got a right to challenge faith because he did it with the rich man. He says, I've observed the law. In other words, if you observe the law, you love the Lord. The Lord says so. And so if you haven't come follow me. Even though he observed the law, God was testing his faith. And he said he wouldn't do it. He says to me, he gave that warning about a rich man going through the eye of a needle. You know? he, yeah. he wouldn't have followed right. the Lord. He had great riches in heaven. Right. Yep. He didn't. So I showed a lack of faith. Yeah, so he was trusting self rather than God. He yeah. the law through uh, the law of trusting self through the law. Yeah, right. Not Christ. Diane, uh, God said, you're observing the law, but follow me. Let's see if you really observe the law. <laughs> yeah, amen. The law leads them people to Christ. Diane. Yeah. I would... I, Right. God, I believe that faith is evidence of a work of grace in the heart. It's not a human ability that we conjure up by willpower. Yes. Uh, Yes. I was going to say the difference between uh, saving faith and have faith in your head. Religion, you know, they observe sacraments, various religions, but I mean, you know, it's all real in their heart. Isn't saving faith. I mean, having having mental assent to the facts of the Bible, you know the Bible it doesn't result in salvation. Yeah, there, I, I I totally agree with you, Brad. That mental assent is not the biblical definition of faith. Yeah, faith is genuine, heartfelt faith that is going to result in a person being willing to come to God on his terms. Because you remember in James it said the demons believe in God. Amen. And there's a lot of people that believe in God that are say they're Christians and they're following every false thing out there. So you've got to wonder if it's real faith. Uh, Kathy. Believing God's Word is true? Yes, that's, part, that's definitely true. We believe the Word. But real faith not only believes the word, but will respond accordingly to the call of, of God through the gospel. So you could conceivably say, I believe everything that's in the Bible. I believe this is all true, which is good. And somebody say, okay, good. Then repent and, and come to Jesus Christ and follow him. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. See, the Jehovah Witnesses, for example... They believe everything in the Bible. So they say, right? They, they say they have the same doctrine of the Bible that we do. Of course, they have their Watchtower version. But what, what in reality, the Watchtower society dictates how they get to believe the Bible or interpret it. And they don't come to God up through Jesus Christ on his terms because of their bad doctrine. I yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a good analogy. <laughs> All right. Um, 
Let's go back here to Abel, okay? Oh, sorry, Steve. Um, as a matter of fact, when I re- was re- preached on this, I'm trying to remember my research, I think one of the scholars pointed out that the descriptions of Abel's offering were very much like later under Moses, the description of, a, of, a, of what God wanted. Right. Where, but no, Abel's offering. But Cain's offering is just uh, kind of stark. He just brought it. So you can get a clue from the text that from the beginning, Abel's offering is acceptable just by the terms that are used in Hebrew. Right. The only, the only question that I had, I saw that too when I was reading that. The only question I have is I don't know how he knew because this predated Moses. You know, we know as the readers what Moses is going to say. I don't know how he knew, but then maybe God told him. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow he knew. Yep. But it, it's, it, we see that in Genesis, as I've been, Gordon Wenham's commentary on Genesis is excellent, that throughout Genesis, you have terminology that you get later in Exodus for what's good and acceptable and it's applied to patriarchs. And so it kind of makes the whole Torah, uh, unified whole. It, it's sort of a fore, <laughs> foreshadowing, yes. That's, you know, when you're reading narrative like this, um, things are left out for whatever reason. And usually when somebody tells a, a historical event, they add things and leave things out based on their what point they want to make. Okay? So I think the point that Moses wanted to make, or the Holy Spirit wanted to make here, is that Abel came by faith and he listened to God and Cain rebelled against God. That's the key point. Some of the details that are going behind the scene, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to tell us. So we just got to guess. All right, uh, let's go back to Hebrews 11. It's called a better sacrifice. And according to William Lane, that, that means a more acceptable. He brought a more acceptable uh, sacrifice. He obtained a testimony that he was righteous. And so all the way through here, you have a catalog of witnesses uh, and so here is God is testifying. That's a legal this term. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And so it's interesting how there's a high view of the inspiration of Scripture here that because this is recorded in the Bible, God is presently speaking through the narrative and through Abel. It says elsewhere that his blood still speaks. Speaks better things. Uh, the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. All right. So we we're to learn something from this. Uh, let's look at. Well, we just did Genesis four. Uh, Noel, could you look up Proverbs twenty one twenty seven? Um, uh, Carolyn, Matthew twenty three thirty five, and Dennis, Hebrews twelve twenty four. Well, and here's one more. Barb, one John three eleven and twelve. Well, I got one more. <laughs> Ryan, Jude 1.11. There's just one chapter, so Jude 11, I guess you could say. Jude verse 11. Okay, so Proverbs 21.27. That's interesting. That might be a good clue about Genesis. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. Cain was wicked. 
Well, you know what? Maybe Malachi would be an interesting cross-reference. Remember the, the theme of the book of Malachi? They had reinstituted the temple, and they had the priesthood, but they were just going through the motions because they didn't really want to do it. And God said that he couldn't stand it. He hated their sacrifices. And they, because they didn't really come from the heart of faith. And that's why they weren't allowed to sacrifice a lame sheep. Because you're basically saying, I didn't want this anyhow. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Malachi says, the governor wouldn't accept this sacrifice. Why should God? Uh, Brad and then Kathy. Yeah, God knows the heart. God knows the heart. Um, so we need the Lord to do heart surgery on us. Uh, William Lane comments on this. The general tenor of Scripture indicates that the superior quality of Abel's offering derived from the integrity of his heart rather than from the nature of the offering itself. That's, that was also what Gordon Wedham thought, but it's hard to tell. Um, okay, Matthew 23:35. Yes, and uh, so according to Jesus in Matthew 23, Abel was the first martyr. He was called a martyr. He was killed because of his faith. Yeah, had had Abel joined Cain in his rebellion, he would have been fine as far as Cain's concerned. That's what I was thinking of. The sprinkled blood that speaks better of the blood of Abel than the blood of Abel. See, Abel was, he died as a victim of somebody's murder, but it didn't atone for anybody else's sins. But Jesus died as a perfectly innocent victim, and he did so as a substitute in order to take away our sins. So that's why it speaks better than the blood of Abel. Okay, John 3, 11 and 12. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. Well, there's, okay, there's inspired commentary right there. Why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So there you go. There's New Testament commentary on, the, on Genesis right there. The second half of the verse that rolled before us. Okay, so I was talking about false teachers, and these false teachers are like the ones that go after the way of Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Now, what is the same about Cain, Balaam, and Korah? To God. Right. Because Cain wouldn't listen to God. And, and he rebelled. Because remember, he said, God said to him, sin's crouching at the door. He wouldn't listen. Balaam didn't want to listen to God. God told him the first time he asked, don't go curse Israel. You're supposed to know these things anyhow. <laughs> okay. Because if, if so many Balaams was familiar with the Israel, which he was, then he knew that if, if you curse Israel, you're cursed. But he wanted to go do it anyhow for pay. And Korah wouldn't accept the fact that God chose Moses and chose the priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. Korah wanted to do it his own way. He wouldn't listen to God. He was going to make his own way to God. And so isn't that the essence of all false religion? Amen. That man is going to make his own, come to God on his own terms, however he sees fit. Why? Well, in Balaam's case, it paid more. It, the, the world will pay you to do religion their way. Uh, in Cain's case, he was just 
rebellious and, and sinful. In Korah's case, he was full of pride. He wanted to be Moses. All right? So there are some underlying motive why people want to do things the wrong way and they don't want to listen to God. Yes, Brad. Yeah, it's pride. It doesn't want to submit to God and his, come to Him on His terms. And then, and then nowadays they they say it's just too narrow, you know, uh, because oh, we, well, we believe in pluralism. Have you heard that one? Oh, how, who are you to say that your way is right and everybody else is wrong? Who are you to say that? And what do you how do you respond to that one? Amen. Amen. To do it their way. To do it their way. Yeah. You know, in, in the past, I've looked at all these like TV evangelists and so forth. Let's say Benny Hinn, for example, fleecing the flock. Yeah. It's not, it's not so much all Benny's fault if you look at it that way, because the flock is paying to hear what they want to hear. Anyway. Okay, let me repeat what he said, because I'm sure nobody could hear. He says, uh, you take the Benny Hinn's of the world that are fleecing the flock. You know, they're making a hundred million a year. Of fleecing the flock. He says, in some ways, it's also the fault of the people that are giving him the money. Yes. Yeah, because they should know better. Why are you giving your money to Benny Hinn when he's not preaching the gospel? They're paying him. They're paying him because they're hearing what they want to hear and they think maybe they could vicariously participate in his stardom. So a false gospel elicits a false response. Yeah, right. Yes, Kathy. Right, and that's why pluralism is so popular because you can have whatever God you see fit. Idolatry. It's idolatry, yeah, it's idolatry. And so the message here, okay, let's summarize because we're done out of time. We're going to summarize what we learned this morning. Faith, genuine faith that is pleasing to God is a willingness by God's grace to come to Him on His terms Amen. and give Him whatever it is He's asking for. And in the, in the New Testament, it's that we put our faith fully in Jesus Christ, turn away from self, and come to Him. And have Him, the blood of Jesus, wash away our sins. And that's what faith is. And if somebody has that genuine saving faith, it will become evident in their lives. There will be a distinct difference. Because God changes us. Right? It won't be just mental only. But that's what God does by His means. So, God bless you.